Thanks for tuning in to the Glenridge Church message. Our mission is to love God, love people, and live to change the world. If we can help you in any way at all, feel free to reach out to us on hello at glenridge.org.za. Hi, everyone. Stephen Debs from Chicago. And before Steve shares with you, I just wanted to say a quick hello. Um, we are well. We are entering our fall season. It's getting colder in Chicago, and I know you're opposite, um, but we're ready for it, ready for soup and chili. Some exciting news is that our construction for our building is finally on the way after months and years of waiting, and we should be in there mid-January, so we are super excited about that. Um, definitely will get us through the cold months while we wait. Um, hope that you guys are well. We think about you often. And just trusting that you are enjoying God's presence and the unity of being together and just all that God has for you. So before I say goodbye, I'm just going to pray quickly for Steve and uh, leave him to share the word with you. Father, I just thank you so much for this opportunity to uh, share your word and what is on your heart for Glenridge. Father, I pray for Steve as he shares your word. I pray that he would um, speak your heart, speak your words, that your presence would be with him, your anointing would be with him. And Father, I pray for the people of Glenridge listening to this word right now. I just ask, Father, that you would work and move in their hearts, even though they are miles and miles away across the ocean. Father, we know that you are with them, that your presence is with them. And we just ask in Jesus' name that you would move, that you would work powerfully, that you would take this word, Lord God, and just that it would bear fruit um, at Glenridge, Father God, with every single heart that hears. We just entrust them to your care. We pray that you'd be with them. Pray that you'd be with Steve right now in Jesus' name. Mm. Amen. 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 Bye, guys. Hi, everyone. Um, so I'd love for you to turn in your Bibles, if you can, to the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation chapter 2 and 3 um, is the text that we're going to be uh, in this morning. I'm really excited about this word that the Lord has laid on my heart to, to share with you. And um, I trust that it's going to be um, not just an encouraging one for you generally, but I believe a specific word for this for this season. Um there's a single word that can summarize my message today. It's a word that you all know very well. Um, I actually get, I would guess that um, the word that summarizes today's message is actually being worn by probably a quarter, maybe even a half of you that are watching this morning's uh, word. It's, a, it's one of the most valuable and recognizable brands of all time. Uh, the word that summarizes today's message is the word Nike. We probably know that Nike, or I think it's pronounced Nike in South Africa, um, but Nike is the Greek wind, winged goddess of victory. And it's derived from the Greek word Nike, which means victorious or to overcome or to conquer. And Nike summarizes the singular and central message from Jesus to the churches and to us in the book of Revelation chapters 2 and chapter 3 specifically. In fact, seven times Jesus says to the churches, to the one who overcomes or to the one who is victorious. And so today I want to talk to you about living victoriously. What does it mean to conquer? What does it mean to overcome? What does is, what is the victorious Christian life look like? But before we get there, I just want to give a little bit of context to the book of Revelation. Um, it's one of the richest and most glorious books 
in all of scripture, but it's also the one book that is perhaps most misunderstood and most misinterpreted, and I think most avoided because it's perhaps the strangest, and I would also suggest probably the most difficult to read. But the first four verses of Revelation chapter 1, in fact, if you can just turn back to Revelation chapter 1, I I, want to read those verses because those verses are critical in us understanding what the book of Revelation is all about and how best to approach the book. So let's read together. We're going to read um, Revelation chapter 1, and we're going to read the first four verses. It says this, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave to him, to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to to heart what is written, because the time is near. And then verse 4 says, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. And there are four descriptions that are given in in these verses that help us understand the context or how best to approach the book of Revelation. Firstly, Revelation is an apocalypse. Apocalypse is is an ancient writing style that was fairly common around the time of Jesus. And verse one actually says this, it says the apocalypse or the revelation or the, the unveiling or the unmasking, that word revelation in the English is the word apocalypse, It's the apocalypse or revelation of Jesus or from Jesus, depending on your your translation. And both are true. Both are absolutely true. It's the revelation from Jesus. Jesus is the one who is unveiling. Jesus is the one who is unmasking the spiritual forces and powers that are at work behind the persecution that is aimed at his church. But it's also the revelation of Jesus. It's the unveiling or the unmasking of the one who is seated on the throne, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who has triumphed over sin and sickness and death and the devil and the one who will bring his people into victory. We must understand that we overcome because Jesus overcame. We triumph because he is triumphant. And this really captures the central message of the book of Revelation. For all that the book of Revelation is, it is it is centrally a message of the victory of Jesus, of the one who is seated on the throne above all thrones. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 17, Jesus actually says to John, he says, fear not or do not be afraid. Essentially, the reason why he says do not be afraid is because I am on the throne. And so we must remember that when we, as we face trials and difficulties and hardships, like the season that we're in right now, churches across the world, our courage is not in our strength. Our confidence is not in what we can do. Our peace is not in our circumstances. But our courage and our confidence and our peace are found in our Savior. And according to Revelation chapter 1, if you, if you carry on reading, our Savior is the one who has eyes like fire. He's the one whose voice thunders like a thunderous waterfall. It's, he is the one who has a double-edged sword coming out of his mouth and his face shines like the sun in all its brilliance. Through this book, through the book of Revelation, Jesus has been revealed or Jesus has been apocalypsed. So firstly, the book of Revelation is an apocalypse. Secondly, verse 2 tells us, that the book of Revelation is a testimony or a witness. It's a 
public declaration to the reign and to the rule, to the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's an apocalypse. It's a testimony. Thirdly, verse 3 tells us that the book of Revelation is a prophecy. It's, it's not the work of some of John's imagination, but it's the word of God that is essentially declaring to, 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 to people across all generations and from all nations, thus saith the Lord. In fact, this book, the book of, of Revelation, is divided into four visions that John has while he was in the spirit. In other words, while he was worshiping, while he was praying, he has four particular visions. And the first one begins in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10. If you read it, it, it says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, it says, On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. I was worshiping. I was praying. I was enjoying a time with God. And then I heard the voice of the one who had a voice like a trumpet. And he turns and he begins to see Jesus. It's an apocalypse. The book of Revelation is an apocalypse. It's a testimony. It's a prophecy. And then lastly, what we're going to focus on today is found in verse 4. The book of Revelation is a letter. It's a letter to seven churches in the in those seven cities that we're going to read about now that are now in what is known as modern day Turkey, who were facing intense persecution from the Jews and, and from the Romans. And, and these were seven real churches, but they're also seven representative churches. And interestingly enough, the number seven appears often in the book of Revelation, and it's the number for fullness or completeness. And the genius of, of Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3 in particular, is that by writing to seven different churches across a range of church experiences, Jesus is a, a, a actually addressing churches across all time. It's very significant that John's first vision of Jesus, his first vision is actually of Jesus, but it's equally significant that in this vision, Jesus is talking to his churches. Each letter starts with these words, these of the word, these are the words of him who, and then it, it, what follows is a description of Jesus. And, and every time Jesus speaks, it concludes with an invitation for the church, for us to listen. It ends with who, whoever has ears, that's us, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Whatever the differences are between the seven churches that are found in Revelation 2 and 3, whatever the differences are between Glenridge in Durban, South Africa, and Anthem Church in Chicago, USA, whatever differences exist between our churches or, or churches across the world that exalt the name of Jesus, two things remain the same. Jesus speaks and his people are called to listen. So with that in mind, I'd love for us to, to turn to the book of Revelation chapters uh, two and three. And we don't have time to read uh, both chapters. It's an, a very extensive piece of, of scripture, but I, I, I want to encourage you to do that. Take some time to, to read these particular chapters because it is full of such incredible, rich uh, uh, um, imagery. And as we're going to see today, some incredible teaching. But I do want to read how uh, Jesus is described as the one who is speaking. So let's look together at the way Jesus is described in each of the seven churches. 
Firstly, in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, These are, are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. In other words, these are the words of Jesus who, who upholds the church in his mighty right hand, his hand of authority, and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. In, in other words, he is present and among his people. This is the one who's speaking. Look at verse 8. It says, these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came to life again. What a beautiful description of Jesus. Look at verse 12. These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword that, that is coming out of his, his, his mouth. These are the words of the, of the one who is the word of God. Look at verse 18. These are the words of the son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. In other words, these are, are, are the words of the one who is the Son of God, who is, who is divine in his nature. Chapter 3, verse 1. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God, the seven spirits, seven, the number of fullness or completeness. Uh, it, 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 another way of, of, of translating this is the sevenfold spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit who was given to Jesus at his ascension, Acts chapter 2 tells us, um, the Holy Spirit was given to Jesus by the Father at Jesus' ascension, and Jesus has poured the Spirit out over his people. And these are the words of him who holds the sevenfold Spirit, the, the, the fullness of the Spirit in his hand, and he holds the seven stars. And then in verse 7, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. And it goes on to say, what he opens, no one can shut and what he shuts, no one can open. In other words, he has all authority. Jesus alone opens and closes doors. And then finally, in verse 14, it says, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. What incredible descriptions of Jesus. And, and, and I, I, I wanted us to read those together because this is the one. Jesus is the one in whom we have victory, the one in whom we overcome and the one in whom we conquer. If you take anything away from today's message uh, about what does the victorious Christian life look like, it looks like living in the one who is victorious. What does the Christian life look like? It looks like living in the one who is victorious. And so let's jump in specifically. What does victorious Christian living look like? What are the specifics of, of what the, this, this incredible text, these two chapters tell us? Before we get there, just to say that some of us might think that victorious Christian living looks something quite similar to the world. We might think victorious Christian living looks like material wealth or a good reputation or healthy relationships. Happy children, if, if, if you're a parent, or perhaps a long life, or a sense of favor in what you put your hand to. And there's nothing wrong with that list. And by God's grace, I trust that, that's, that some, if not all of us, would experience some, if not all, of those particular things. But, but those are not the measure of the victorious Christian life. Those are gifts given to us by God. It, it can't be those things that I've just described because two churches in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, specifically Smyrna and the church in Philadelphia, both appear to be really struggling. It describes these churches as churches that are afflicted, churches that are poor or are being slandered or are fearful or are persecuted and weak. I mean, imagine if that was their Google review. No one would ever appear or go to those particular churches. But yet, to those churches, Jesus has nothing but praise. 
And two other churches, the church in Sardis and the church in Laodicea, appear to be successful. Sardis is actually described as having a reputation of being alive. If you heard that there was a church where, where the life of God, where it, was, it appears as if the life of God is, is present, you would absolutely go there. But to them, Jesus says, wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. And can I just go back and say, it's the appearance of the life of God, if not the life of God. And I trust that you make, uh, acknowledge that particular distinction. The point I'm trying to make is the victorious Christian life doesn't necessarily come with signs of success that the world would easily recognize. It, it might do so. And, and, and if, if it does, thank God for the gifts that he is pouring out on, on his church or on us as individuals. But most likely, the victorious Christian life comes with signs that the world very easily, over, uh, very easily overlooks. And I think sometimes, to be honest, we make the same mistake when assessing the quote-unquote success of particular leaders. I don't know if this is true in, in, in South Africa now, but certainly in the U.S., whenever you see advertisements for Christian conferences, you never see an advertisement that says uh, uh, sp- one of the speakers Uh, So-and-so have faithfully led their church of just under 100 for the last 25 years. You'll never see that because those folks never get invited to speak at conferences. We don't associate success with someone who has led a church of just under 100 for 25 years. We assume that those are the ones who need to attend the conferences, not necessarily speak at the conferences. In fact, the most successful leader after Jesus of all time was Paul, and in, in all honesty, According to worldly standards, he was not a success. He was single. And this, if we're honest, is not very common for Christian leaders today. He was poor. He was a tent maker. He was frequently beaten. He was persecuted often. He was left for dead. He he struggled with fear. Read Acts chapter 18 where he was in Corinth. and, And the Lord had to speak to him to give him strength and courage to continue the work that he was called to do. In fact, Paul, the book of Acts goes on to tell us that Paul was not necessarily the most engaging speaker, which gives all preachers like, like myself and, and others great courage. I mean, Paul preached and actually someone fell out the window because they fell asleep and died. I mean, by the goodness of God, no one's died while I've preached before. But the point is that we're still living in the legacy of Paul today, despite not being what many would today consider successful. So if Victorious Christian living is not necessarily material wealth and a good reputation and all these other things. What, what is it? And, and as I said at the beginning of what I wanted to share, this is such a critical question in the light of all that we're going through. Seven things. For the church in Ephesus, the victorious Christian life looked like love. Look at uh, Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians. <laughs> Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Verse 5, consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. When a relationship like a friendship or a marriage starts to lose its closeness, it's good to ask, what did we do at first as a way of rekindling that intimacy or that closeness? And it's such an important question to ask if our love for Jesus has begun to wane. What did you do at first when you first came to know Jesus as Lord and Savior? You likely didn't have an agenda. to So, so you spent time with him simply like by, by, by walking and spending time with Jesus or, or listening to his voice or, or, or worshiping him with worship music or reading his word or learning to pray on impulse. 
These are things that weren't necessarily uh, uh, um, done in order to mark off on a checklist, but things that came from the passion in our hearts. And maybe we need to rekindle some of that. Some of that. I want to just, as an aside, suggest never resist the slightest impulse or the slightest urge to pray. It's a great way to learn to be aware of God's presence. As you're walking down the street, as you are driving in your car, as you are cleaning the dishes or doing whatever you are doing, if you, fear, if you sense that you are hearing the quiet, still voice of the Holy Spirit, take a moment, stop what you're doing, 20 seconds, and begin to pray as you feel the Holy Spirit lead you. Overcoming looks like love. The victorious Christian life looks like love, first for Jesus and then overflowing to others. Secondly, for the church in Smyrna, the victorious Christian life looked like death. Now, if I was preaching to you in person, there probably wouldn't be that many amens to that particular point. But look at verse 10 of chapter 2. Verse 10 of chapter 2 says, Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 years. Be faithful, it says, even to the point of death. And, and I will give you the, vic, the, the, the victor's crown. Oh, sorry. I just, uh, I've stopped. I didn't read the end of chapter 10. Let me read the end of chapter 10 again. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. And this is the first time that we are introduced to the, this, this, um, this idea of martyrdom, people being killed for their faith in Jesus. And in the book of Revelation, this is a very important theme. I read a fascinating statistic recently that in church history, one in 120 Christians have been or will be killed for their faith. And probably for most of us not living in the East, this won't really affect us. But we have to learn to navigate this theologically because it's a, it's a reality for many of our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. And when we start to understand this theologically, it helps us read the Bible from a global perspective. But even if martyrdom won't be our experience, we cannot forget that the Christian life begins with death, which is symbolized by water baptism. We, 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 we are baptized into, into water. The old self, the old man or woman dies, and we are raised new in Jesus Christ. It, 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 this symbolizes complete and total surrender to Jesus. Friends, we, we cannot be those that segment off parts of our lives, a, a small compromise here or a small compromise there, saying, Jesus, you can have all of this, but you cannot touch these particular areas. Because when we live like that, those small compromises eventually begin to infect every part of our lives. No one wakes up in the morning and decides to cheat on their taxes or cheat on their spouse. No one wakes up in the morning and decides to get hooked on porn or alcohol. These are decisions that come at the end of a series of small compromises and blurred lines on things that we initially deemed inconsequential, things that we've held back from Jesus, things that we haven't surrendered to Jesus, often motivated by the belief that it's not that important or it won't happen to me. Brian Johnson from Bethel writes in one of his songs, you can have it all, Lord every part of my will. Take this life and breathe on this heart that is now yours. And then he goes on to say, oh, the joy I found surrendering my crowns at the feet of the king who surrendered everything. Overcoming looks like death. Even every part of my life surrendered to Jesus and to his lordship. Thirdly, for the church in Pergamum, the victorious Christian life looked like repentance. Look at verse 14 
15 and, and 16. Um, chapter 2, verse 14, 15, and 16. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are, there are some among you who hold on to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Look at verse 16. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Repent, therefore. Repentance is not just this once-off thing that we do when we receive Jesus into our hearts as Lord and Savior. Repentance is also not something we do in a, in a, in a guilt-ridden, shameful way in the hope of trying to access God's presence. Can I say, we don't access God's presence through repentance. We access God's presence through thanksgiving. When we lift our eyes and we lift our voices in joy and with thanksgiving, we enter his gates with thanksgiving in our hearts. And when we find ourselves in the presence of God, the spirit begins to convict us of sin. And that's where repentance begins to flow as a beautiful way of, of gaining, uh, regaining intimacy with God the Father through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Repentance is a gift. It's a gift that comes with walking with the Spirit, overcoming. The victorious Christian life looks like repentance, turning away from anything that distracts me from following Jesus. Fourthly, for the church in Thyatira, the victorious Christian life looked like intolerance. Look at verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate the woman, this woman Jezebel. Jezebel represented uh, all, all, uh, all that uh, um, was associated with false teaching, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. Intolerance is never appropriate when it comes to people. But when it's used of things attacking the church, Intolerance is necessary. Jesus is essentially saying to this church, you're doing well, but you are tolerating teaching that will eventually destroy you. Listen to this. Love almost always is, expresses some degree of intolerance. Love almost always expresses some degree of intolerance. Earlier this year, Debs and I celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary in January before COVID. And we decided to go out to one of our most favorite restaurants in, in, in Chicago. And unbeknown to us, we had booked our, our particular night at a time when it was Chicago Restaurant Week. Chicago Restaurant Week is when restaurants across the city participate and they, they kind of dumb down their menu a little bit and give you a sampling of their menu at a reduced price to try and get more, more folks to come through their restaurant. We didn't realize that. We were expecting something that was romantic and quiet and memorable, but it's not what we got. I was intolerant that night of the portion sizes, which were tiny. I was intolerant of the fact that I, was feel, that I felt rushed. They wanted to get us in there and they wanted to get us out and increase the, the turnover. And I was intolerant of the fact that I ended up sitting closer to the person next to me than I was at the, actually sitting next to Debs because they were, had crammed in extra tables. I was intolerant of those things because of the love that I felt for my, for my wife. Love almost always expresses some degree of intolerance. We should be able to say, Jesus, because I love you and because I love your church, I'll be intolerant of anything that could hurt the church or cause me to be ineffective for, for you. Overcoming 
looks like intolerance, against sin that slowly pulls me away from Jesus. Fifthly, for the church in Sardis, the victorious Christian life looked like, looks like wakefulness or alertness. Look at verse 2. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. In other words, Jesus is saying, be awake, be alert, be aware of the urgency of the hour and the call of God that is on your life and that is on the church. And and again, friends, at at such a time as this, this is probably uh, um, perhaps most important or one of the most important of the seven. This is a time for wakefulness and alertness. We need to be asking ourselves, what is God saying? What is God doing? And what is my response? What is our response as a church? This is not the time to be indifferent or apathetic or unwise to what is going on around us, both personally as as a church and also within our culture. This is a time for us to be awakened to the spiritual realities that are at work trying to oppose us from from fulfilling the purpose of God for our lives. And if there's one thing that studying and reading the book of Revelation recently has taught me, it's made me aware of and awaken to the spiritual realities that that are opposing the purposes of God. Overcoming looks like being awake and being alert, not indifferent or not apathetic. Sixthly, for the church in Philadelphia, the victorious Christian life looked like endurance. Verse 11, I am coming soon. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Jesus had nothing but praise for this church. And he says to them, hold fast, keep going. A couple years ago, I ran a half marathon in Columbus and the... the, the um, the final mile, I turned the corner and the final mile was, was a straight, straight down the middle of the road in downtown Columbus. And as I got to about three quarters of that final mile, thinking that I was just about, had about a quarter mile to go, suddenly, I didn't realize this then until I got to the point, but suddenly the route took me left. I had to run an entire block in order to add just a little bit extra to the run. And sometimes that's what it feels like when we're, when we're walking with or serving the purposes of God. We endure and we press on and we keep going. And then there's a detour, there's a, 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 a kind of a, a detour in the road and it seems like it gets harder. But I want to say we need to do what God calls us to do in those times. Hold fast and keep going. Some of you that are listening to this message have run the Christian life for years. And victory for you looks like being here, being in Glenridge, being where you are, serving faithfully the same time next year until God calls you on. And for others, maybe who are newer to the Christian faith, maybe you have recently given your hearts to Jesus. Maybe you haven't been running for as long, but you felt like it's, it seems like it's uphill from the very beginning. And I want to say to those who have been running in, uh, uh, patiently for long and those who are, are facing difficult times, I want to encourage you with the words of Jesus. Well done. Keep on going and hold fast. Overcoming looks like endurance, and there's nothing sexy about that. Endurance means the refusing to give up on the promises of God. And then lastly, for the church in Laodicea, the victorious Christian life looks like zeal. Look at verse 15. I know your deeds, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish you were either one or the other. Think of a piping hot piece of bury straight off the fire. It's absolutely delicious with the juices kind of running down the side of your face. 
Think of crisp, cold fruit salad on a hot summer day. Absolutely refreshing. Then think about yesterday's curry that's been warmed up in the microwave for half the time that it, that it should have been. It's absolutely disgusting. You see, the point is Jesus wants us on fire and passionate and wholehearted and all in. Not nominal and indifferent and otherwise and apathetic and uncommitted. Overcoming looks like zeal. Passionate for the things of, that God is passionate for. I've given us a list of seven things that are found directly out of the book of Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And that's a challenging list. The victorious Christian life is not as easy as material wealth or a good reputation or healthy relationships or happy children or, or a long, long life or a sense of favor in what you put your hand to. God could give us all of that. And if he has for some, praise God for the gifts of grace. But that's not what Jesus says are signs of the victorious Christian life. His list includes love and death and repentance and intolerance, and alertness, and endurance, and zeal. And, and, and when we read that list, we might think, it, that's not easy. I, I certainly think that when I read that list. But there are two incredible promises that I want to just alert us to, to sustain us as we, as we trust that we become people who live the victorious Christian life according to Jesus. Firstly, each letter starts, sorry, in each letter, it says to the one who overcomes or to the one who is victorious. And then Jesus gives us seven incredible promises to the one who overcomes or is victorious. He says, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. He says that, that, that if we overcome, we will not be hurt by the second death. In other words, there will be eternal life, not just forever, but even live now. It goes on to say, I will give hidden manna and a white stone with a new name written on it. And if you're wondering what that is, I, I personally have no idea. But I know it's like that Christmas gift that we get on Christmas Day that we don't know what it is, but we know for certain that it's going to be amazing. Jesus goes on to say, I will give to the one who overcomes, I will give authority over nations. He goes on later to say, I will, uh, I will acknowledge their name, our name, if we overcome before God, our, my father and his angels. I will make him or her a pillar in the temple of my God. And then lastly, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne. These are promises that have begun to be fulfilled now and will ultimately be fulfilled in eternity. That's what enables us to, to uh, uh, endure and to overcome and to trust that we could be victorious. But secondly, after his strongest letter, his letter to the church of the, Laodice the church in Laodicea, Jesus tells us, I'm challenging you because I love you deeply. Look at verse 19 and verse 20. Verse 19 and verse 20, he goes, those whom I love, those whom I love, I rebuke and I discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am, he says, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and will eat with that person and they with me. What Jesus is saying is, is that my love and my passion for you is piping hot, which is why I don't want you to be luke lukewarm. 
He, he goes on to say, essentially, if I, if I thought it was over for you, if I thought that you had no future, if I thought that you couldn't do this, I wouldn't be challenging you this way. But I know there is so much more for you. I'm not a lukewarm savior, Jesus is saying to us. And so I don't want you to be a lukewarm bride. I want you to be as zealous for me as I am for you. And I'll help you with that, which is why I'm constantly knocking day and night and waiting for you to let me in. And the moment that you do, the moment that you open, open the, the door of your heart. I'm in and there to fellowship with you, to eat and to drink with you and to celebrate victory together. Jesus wants us to be a people. Jesus wants us to be a bride that overcomes. He is zealous for us and he wants us to be zealous for him. And his answer to help us is simply for us to open our hearts and to say, Jesus, you can have it all. Every part of my, my, my heart, every part of my world, I give it all to you. I lay it all down, Jesus. Come in. This, this is actually this invitation of knocking on a door, which we often associate with, with, with making a commitment for the first time with Jesus, is actually Jesus speaking to his church. And he's saying, let me in wholeheartedly. Open your heart wholeheartedly. Let me in and let me fellowship with you. I'm going to invite you just to close your eyes and I would love to, to, for us just to take a moment to pray together. Holy Spirit, would you, would you move on our hearts this morning? Thank you for your word, Jesus. Your word which you spoke over these seven churches, which we receive as your word over us today. You are desperate for your church in these times to be a church that is on fire for you. You are desperate for your church, Jesus, for us to be a people that are surrendered and submitted, a people that are, that are enduring, the people that are, that are on fire for you, Jesus, so that we can be those who overcome. Thank you, Lord. Just as we're waiting on God, perhaps you can sense as a follower of Jesus, those of you who are listening who are, who, is a, who are followers of Jesus, perhaps you can sense Jesus knocking on the door of your heart. This is an invitation for you to let him in. In those areas perhaps that you've held back, in those areas perhaps that you've held on to and you've said, you might have said to Jesus, Jesus, you can have all of this, but you can't touch my relationships or my finances or my fears or my addictions or my dreams, or my hopes. Maybe there's parts of our lives that we've cordoned off and sectioned off and we've held on to and said, Jesus, you can have all of that. I hope that pleases you, but you can't have this today. Could you surrender those things? Even with fear and trembling, could you just say, Jesus, I'm nervous too, but here, take it all. I surrender all of my heart to you. Jesus wants us to be victorious. Jesus wants us to overcome. I'm just going to read that list again of the seven signs of victorious living. And maybe just allow the Holy Spirit to, to highlight one, maybe two areas that he wants to minister in your life. Let Jesus in so that he can revive our love for him. Let Jesus in so that he can give us courage to surrender everything to him. Let Jesus in so that he can help us turn away from what we know is sin. Let Jesus in so that we do not tolerate 
anything that will eventually destroy us. Let Jesus in so that he can help us be alert and awake. Let Jesus in so that he can strengthen us to endure. Let Jesus in so that he can stir us with zeal and with wholeheartedness. And just as you ponder on those seven things, perhaps you're watching today and you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And perhaps today you are sensing Jesus knocking on the door of your heart. And I want to say, friends, if that's you today, open the door of your heart and say, Jesus, I receive you as the gift of eternal life. Jesus, I I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Would you forgive me of my sins? I lay down my life and ask that you would be come into my heart and be my Lord and Savior. The faith that I put in my own achievements, Jesus, I, I acknowledge that as, as death. And I choose today to take that faith that I put in my achievements and I choose to put that faith in you, in what you did on the cross. I thank you for your death and re- resurrection. Jesus, would you come into my heart and be my Lord and Savior? If you prayed that prayer this morning, if you invited Jesus into your heart as Lord and Savior, I'm sure Stan or Heather or one of the eldership team will will have some means for you to reach out to to the church at Glenridge and, and, and let them know that you prayed that prayer this morning. Otherwise, thank you so much for watching. I hope this message encouraged you. We love you. We can't wait to see you in person. I pray God's blessing over you as a church. I pray that you would continue to live in the fullness of the victory of Jesus. We are victorious when we are a people who live in Jesus, the one who achieved the victory for us. God bless. We love you all and can't wait to see you soon. Bye.